On the walls of the temple at Luxor, this self-inscribed message greets readers of the magnificence and glory and bravery and vanity of Pharaoh Ramses II. His majesty slaughtered the armed forces of the Hittites in their entirety. Their great rulers and all their brothers, their infantry and chariot troops fell prostrate, one on top of the other. His majesty killed them all, and they stretched out in front of their horses. But his majesty was alone. Nobody accompanied him. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 43, Ramses II and the Battle of Kadesh. It's been almost 200 years since the exodus and complete destruction of Egypt's political and economic system through the plagues and destruction of their army in the Red Sea. And over 200 years ago, Egypt's government virtually collapsed into what was called the Second Intermediate Period until it began to reorganize into an organized state into what is called the New Kingdom or Egyptian Empire covering the 18th through 20th dynasties. If you look at Egypt from an overhead map and consider its farthest reaches, it is during this time period that Egypt is considered at its peak of power, and the greatest king in this time was Ramses II. Here is an encyclopedia entry for a possible reason for Egypt's expansion, possibly as a result of the foreign rule of the Hyksos during the Second Intermediate Period. The New Kingdom saw Egypt's attempt to create a buffer between the Levant and Egypt and attain its greatest territorial extent. Similarly, in response to very successful 17th century attacks by the powerful Kingdom of Kush, the New Kingdom felt compelled to expand far south into Nubia and hold wide territories in the Near East, and Egyptian armies fought Hittite armies for control of modern-day Syria. Now, Ramses II was born 1303 B.C. and lived through 1213 B.C. And for a biblical reference, Ehud lived about the same time, from 1302 B.C. to 1204 B.C. And in the timeline of Ehud, Ramses comes to power and grows in influence and fights many battles, most notably the Battle of Kadesh, which is fought just north of Israel between the ancient superpowers of Egypt and the Hittite Empire, all during the reign of Judge Ehud. Ramses II became ruler of Egypt in 1279 BC, which is five years after Ehud kills Eglon and Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem. Giving everyone a world map view, Israel, which is free from outside influence at this point because of Ehud, is surrounded by a resurgent Egypt to the south and to the north, a resurgent Hittite empire as well. Smacked between two empires, Israel is at peace and solidly walking with God at the moment. The Bible doesn't mention either civilization with much detail in this timeline, which is quite curious, most likely because they didn't disturb Israel. Egypt had to know better than to mess with Israel. No doubt any Egyptian who learned their history wouldn't mess with the Israelites. 
and the Hittites had their own problems, for their empire would disappear from history some time from now. All right, so more on Ramses II. He was the third Egyptian pharaoh of the 19th dynasty. He rules Egypt for 66 years, and he lived for 90 years. After turning 30 years old, he was celebrated in a said festival, which declared him a god on earth, and at his death he was buried in the Valley of Kings. Today his mummy now rests in the Cairo Museum. He was an incredible builder of cities, temples, and monuments, and most of them all to himself. His capital was Pi Ramses. This is what philosopher-historian Will Durant says of Ramses II. At this point, the romantic Ramses II, last of the great pharaohs, mounted the throne. Seldom has history known so picturesque a monarch, handsome and brave, he added to his charms by his boyish consciousness of them and his exploits in war, which he never tired of recording, were equaled only by his achievements and love. Historian Will Durant really had a high opinion of Ramses II, but again, again, so did Ramses himself. But Will Durant's opinion gets better. This is how he concludes the life of Ramses II. He had his victories commemorated without undue impartiality on half a hundred walls, commissioned a poet to celebrate him in epic verse, and reward himself with several hundred wives. When he died, he left one hundred sons and fifty daughters to testify to his quality by their number and their proportion. He married several of his daughters so that they might have splendid children. His offspring were so numerous that they constituted for four hundred years a special class in Egypt, from which, for over a century, her rulers were chosen. It gets more extravagant. Um, Durant continues, He deserved these consolations, for he seems to have ruled Egypt well. He built so lavishly that half of the surviving edifices of Egypt were ascribed to his reign. He completed the main hall of Karnak, added to the temple of Luxor, raised his own vast shrine, Ramesses, west of the river, finished the great sanctuary at Abi Sembel, and scattered colossal statues of himself throughout the land. Commerce flourished under him, both across the Ithamus of Suez and on the Mediterranean. He built another canal from the Nile to the Red Sea, but the shifting sand filled it up soon after his death. He yielded up his life in 1225 B.C., age 90, after one of the most remarkable reigns in history. Now, clearly, historians are a big fan of Ramses II. And it looks like, you know, the dates are slightly different. Um, most people have him living a little bit earlier or a little bit later. Um, let's talk about his military conquest. In the early years of his reign, he conquered the Mediterranean pirates that were harassing his shores. Many historians believe that this is a part of a group of northern peoples migrating south in search of new territory. And after defeating them over many successive invasions, Egypt and this is over many generations, Egypt gladly relocated these northern peoples or pirate, uh, Mediterranean pirates to the region of western Israel in the area of the Mediterranean coast, which many claim could have birthed the Philistine peoples, later called the Philistines. But to be clear, their birth as a people is still quite a mystery. Regardless, Ramses defeats them, and later marches on Nubia and takes the gold mines and expands his empire significantly southward. 
Later he leads a campaign into what is called the Levant by historians. Levant is another word in this time for Canaan or Israel. It appears Ramses gains control over areas inside today's Israel. Not Ehud territory though, but the area of the Philistines. The line of territory from Gaza to Tel Aviv today. Also, Ramesses led expeditions into Moab and north as well. All these campaigns were in the first 30 years of his reign. Most consider this time and after this the high watermark for Egypt and territorial expansion. But what happens next is just fascinating to me. It's such a message to kings, a word to the kings of the earth to learn from history. Ramses II has done well. But it was on his 30th birthday of his rule that things begin to change. On this day, on the 30th anniversary of his rule, it is tradition in Egypt to hold a said festival, where the pharaoh is declared a god on earth. Here's another encyclopedia entry of the said festival. After reigning 30 years, Ramses joined a select group that included only a handful of Egypt's longest living kings. By tradition, in the 30th year of his reign, Ramses celebrated a jubilee called the Sed Festival, during which the king was ritually transformed into a god. Only halfway through what will be a 60-66 to 66 year reign, Ramses had already eclipsed all but a few of the greatest kings in his achievements. He had brought peace, maintained Egypt's borders, and built great and numerous monuments across the empire. His country was more prosperous and powerful than it had been in nearly a century. All right, so it's easy to see a transformation in Ramses at this point. He was always a prolific builder in monuments and temples, and of course, these monuments were statues of himself. But these monuments accelerated. Everyone had to know how special he was. It's interesting, you don't see many obelisks at this time, or even pyramids, just statues of Ramses himself. Let's just say he was pretty high on himself. And back in the days of Moses, we compared Pharaoh to the spiritual concept of pride. Well, it's manifesting again in this time like before. It is a self-declared God that he becomes. It's almost as if God sets these kings up to see that they're not gods. Especially the Pharaohs. If God is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent... Then to be God, Pharaoh must be all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-present. Let's see what happens to Pharaoh less than a year after he's declared a god. Enter Ramses II and his war with the Hittite Empire and the Battle of Kadesh. Ramses II rates up as one of the greatest egotists of all time. He was a master propaganda expert. Everything is a victory. Everything declares his glory and no one else's. But don't be deceived. He declared he held Canaan captive. But we know this is not true, for Ehud overthrew Eglon, and there was peace in Israel for 80 years. There was peace in Israel, but just north of it, there was no peace in a place called Kadesh. All right, so let's set the scene. Ramses had control over Philistia, and like we said before, Many believe the Philistines were descendants of the pirates and the northern peoples who came down to tr attempt to settle into Egypt, and they were defeated on the Egyptian shores and relocated as an Egyptian colony. Next, Ramses moves further northward and established trading centers and military bases 
further north until he arouses a resurgent Hittite empire into action based in modern Turkey. Next, we have to back up because the Bible never mentions Ramses II in the Battle of Kadesh. And from the outside looking in, from the perspective of Egypt, you do not want to mess with the Israelites. They were great trading partners. They could be okay friends, but you don't want to arouse this people who could rally 400,000 troops just to destroy one of their own tribes. Better to not mess with these guys. Be their friends, but the benefit of defeating them was not worth it to the Egyptians or the Hittites. The investment would not be worth it unless God granted it to them, and God did not hand over Israel to these two empires. So when Ramses began to expand his interest into Israel, it's interesting to read the entries in all the parties to understand what he was doing. It's curious to me the cities that he captured were not held by Israel, such as Jerusalem, and how he teamed with Canaanite allies, namely the Philistines. It's almost as if he skirted Israel. It says he captured Moab and other territories in an attempt to go around Israel. It's like Israel is a Switzerland, a neutral in this conflict, but at the same time, I see Ehud with a newly made sword watching this guy like a hawk with thousands of troops on a razor's edge ready to slaughter the Egyptians if they step foot on the land. But fortunately, there was no action between Israel and Egypt for the sake of Ramses II's legacy. There was too much of a past between these two nations. Ramses II surely knew his history, and Ehud was not going to allow a captivity repeat on his watch. All right, to the north of Israel was an empire called the Hittites, and I'll spend more time on them next episode. They were an empire headquartered and generally located in the region of Turkey. They are traditionally the first empire associated with the development of chariots and basic ironworking was coming about within the empire at this time. At this time, they have a resurgence under the leadership of its king, King Malawatu. He gathered his allies and forces because Pharaoh Ramses II was encroaching into modern-day Lebanon and Syria, way beyond his borders and lands, and very close to the homeland of the Hittites. The result was the Battle of Kadesh, one of the most high-profile and most documented battles of antiquity. Pharaoh, a self-declared god on earth, was leading his armies to attack the Hittites, very far from home. Ramses had about 20,000 troops in four divisions with 500 chariots per division. The Hittites have greater numbers, possibly up to 30,000 troops and 3,000 chariots, and they're defending their homeland or at least close to it. The Egyptians do have a few advantages. The Egyptians have a superior composite bow, and their chariots are lighter and more mobile. The iron Hittite chariot was superior in the open field, but the Egyptian chariot was better for a longer campaign of maneuver. So I like to imagine what's going on in Israel now. No doubt Israel was acutely aware of the situation and Ehud was waiting for Egypt to show up on their front door, for they had already taken Philistia and parts of Moab. Ehud must have been prepared with tens of thousands of Israelites prepared to take on Ramses. But instead, Ehud most likely watching from a hilltop, saw Ramses II's army headed towards Israel and turned north towards the Hittite lands 
to his great delight. Word spread north of Ramses II's target, and the Hittites rallied, thus the Battle of Kadesh. Pharaoh had his army in four divisions, the Ammon, Ray, Ptah, and Seth divisions. Each of these divisions had 5,000 troops and 500 chariots. He's leading the armies in the Ammon division, and the other three divisions, the Ra, Ptah, and Seth divisions, were behind him. Within seven miles of Kadesh, two nomads were discovered, and they convinced Ramses that the Hittites were over a hundred miles away. Ramses, in his haste to take advantage of the situation, rushed ahead with the Mun division, consisting of 5,000 troops and 500 chariots, away from his next division, the Ra division, which is about the same size. The Ra division tries to keep up, leaving half of the army, the Ptah and the Set divisions, many, many miles to the south. In fact, there is such a distance between them that these two divisions do not arrive for the battle. When the Hittite army attacks... At this moment, the Hittite trap was sprung for the Hittite army was only miles away awaiting an ambush. The two nomads were Hittite spies. Ramses II took the bait. Clearly, he wasn't all omniscient or all-knowing. He would be fighting a battle with only half his army. The Ammon division, led by Ramses, was many miles to the north when the Ra division trying to catch up with the Amun division, was smashed by nearly an entire Hittite army. I mean smashed in the open field, surprised, outnumbered almost five to one. The raw division disintegrates under the rolling of the iron chariots of the Hittite army in the open field. Seriously, this is one of the worst places to be in antiquity, in the open field and surprised by a Hittite army and their iron chariots. With the raw division completely destroyed, and what is left of it runs from the field, the Hittites swung north to destroy Ramses and the Ammon division, which was in camp. The Hittites slammed in the Egyptian camp, and the Hittite forces went on a rampage looting the Egyptian camp. At this point, totally outnumbered, Ramses was fighting for his life and kingdom. And Ramses was made acutely aware that he was not omnipotent or all-powerful. And without half his army, he clearly wasn't omnipresent either. He's only got a quarter of his men from the Ammon division, and what was left of the Raw division rallied to him. And fortunately for Ramses, the Hittites get distracted by looting the Egyptian camp, and Ramses is able to rally his men. And this is where Ramses declares the lines from the beginning of the episode. His majesty slaughtered the armed forces of the Hittites in their entirety, their great rulers and all their brothers. Their infantry and chariot troops fell prostrate, one on top of the other. His majesty killed them, and they stretched out in front of their horses. But his majesty was alone. Nobody accompanied him. So at this point, crafted like a novel, or by Pharaoh Ramses himself, the Egyptian side of the story states that Ramses rallied what was left of his army. Facing certain defeat, he found enough chariots and organized his troops to fight back the Hittites and led charges against them and began to push back the overextended and tired Hittite chariotry. Hoping to destroy what was left of the Egyptians, the Hittite king next threw in his reserves 
and Ramses, just in time, as the Hittite king was attacking with his reserves, Ramses' reinforcements arrive. Not the two divisions from the south, but local allies which repulsed multiple charges until the Hittites beat a hasty retreat and suffered heavy losses themselves trapped against a riverbank. A subsequent inconclusive battle was fought the next day, and each side claimed a victory in the battle. But it is clear Ramses won a tactical battlefield victory because he forced the Hittites from the field of battle. But his campaign was a strategic failure. Following the battle, Ramses was unable to sustain his army so far from home. So he returned to the occupied areas of Canaan and finally went back to Egypt. All right, so think with me here. Ehud is watching the Egyptian troops maimed and wounded and Ramses' fractured army returning from battle up north as they retreat back home. And I can almost imagine Ehud watching Ramses from a hilltop as Ramses headed south to Philistia with his shattered army and Ehud saying on that windswept hill, Ramses, you are not a god. And you never were a god, and you never will be a god. Later, Ramses leads another campaign against the Hittites, and the result was limited, and eventually the Egyptians and Hittites sign a peace agreement. And a copy of the treaty can be found at the Istanbul Archaeological Museum today. In addition, in a large replica of the Kadesh Agreement, hangs on a wall at the headquarters of the United Nations, which is one of the earliest international peace treaties known to historians. Ramses would continue to rule Egypt until the time of his death at about 90 years of age. Ramses had left his impact in the world on the battlefield, in architecture, cultural advances in many different ways, but his reign was the territorial high watermark for Egypt. Less than 150 years after Ramses died, the Egyptian empire would fall and the new kingdom would come to an end. Reflecting upon the reign of Ramses II, when I consider Ramses II in Egypt at this time, it reminds me of Louis XIV, Louis XIV of France. He was one of France's greatest kings, culturally ahead of his time, technologically superior than other countries, and he led France at one of its territorial highest points, just like Ramses. Also, his empire would only live a short while after him, and it was Louis XIV who made this statement near the end of his life, I loved war too much. In fact, all it did was bankrupt his country and brought little return. Louis XIV, who was called the Sun King, would nearly destroy his country through warfare, just like Ramses who nearly completely lost his life and empire when the Ra division, the division named after Egypt's sun god, was obliterated by a foolish error by a king considered a god. It is a lesson for those out there who love war too much, and their pride, and specifically temporal glory. Do not destroy yourself and those around you in your personal pursuit of glory. True everlasting glory can only come from the King of Glory. To conclude this episode, there's a fascinating care for nations that God takes in the Bible. In the book of Revelation, it says the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. 
God loves people and he loves nations as well. The problem with nations is that he is forced to oppose those nations that arise against him. Check out Psalms 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and he terrifies them in his wrath. God is really into world conquerors and speaking through them. In Daniel chapter 4, God humbles King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, for his pride, and his declaration speaks for itself. Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, What have you done? And at that same time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt the glory, the King of heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings. Stay tuned next week as we look at the Hittite Empire and its disintegration in the Bronze Age collapse and the fall of Troy. Feel free to visit the Facebook page and leave a comment or question. Or if you want to chat, email me at messagetokings at gmail.com. Tune in next week to the Message to Kings podcast.